Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Jason Jimenez with you, as always. So glad to be with you once again. And my friends, today is podcast 60. Man, that's hard to believe that 60 podcasts in, and it's just been such a thrill. It's been such a blessing to wake up every morning and to study the life of Jesus Christ. So as you and I are on this personal journey together to learn more about Jesus and his love for us in a chronological way, it gives us a better perspective. I hope that as your knowledge has grown, that your spiritual enrichment has as well, that you have grown closer to our dear Savior, and that you have really learned uh, the power of the gospel in our lives. So that that's my prayer, my friends, and that's been such a, a blessing for me, and I pray, as always, it's a blessing for you. So know that as I jump into my study and as we record every week on this podcast that we are praying for the many men and women, young and old, who will be just radically changed by this podcast. So know that we love you guys and we're thankful for your support. So as always, if you've missed any previous podcast, check us out, Google Play, iTunes, standstrongministries.org is our website. And on that website, you can get our study notes when you click on podcast. So I pray that that's a blessing to you as well. So let's jump right into it, podcast 60, as we continue our study. Jesus, if you remember, he had just left with his disciples when he went into Tyre and Sidon. And remember, that's where he fed the 4,000 in Matthew 15. And then after he did that, he crossed over to the Sea of Galilee to Bethsaida in Mark chapter 8, verses 22 through 26, where Jesus, remember, he healed the blind man. And then after that, he took a 30-mile trip. Now, my friends, that's significant. That could be approximately up to two days worth of travel when Jesus went to Caesarea Philippi. And now remember, this was possibly near Mount Hermon, where that was the where the ancient temple to Pan was located. And and some even historians think that it was still existing during the time of Jesus. And that's where he asked the famous question to his disciples. And we talked about this in the last podcast, podcast 59. Who do you say that I am? Now, remember, that setting was so significant because Jesus was basically saying, look, people believe that God could be pretty much anything. You could be God. The world is God. The universe has pantheism. All is God. But who do you say that I am? And you remember the response that Peter and the disciples gave. You are the son of God. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus affirmed that testimony. And so that's where we pick things up now. And Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 and 23. Now I'm going to read that passage. This is also parallel passages in Mark 8, 31 through 33 and Luke 9, 21 through 22. Now there's two key things that I want to discuss on today's podcast. The first one is we're going to examine what Jesus meant right after they made that affirmation of who he is, why he talks about his death and resurrection. And finally, as he talks about why he came and for the disciples to, remember, uh, mature in their understanding of the Messiahship, that he talks about discipleship and its costs. So let's jump right into Matthew chapter 16, beginning verse 21 says, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. 
And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and he said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on things of God, but on the things of man. Now here in Mark 8, 31, it began like this. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So as I mentioned earlier, remember the disciples, they just had a win. They got the question right. And so now they're all excited thinking, man, we know who you are. You're going to come and be victorious here on earth and we're going to rule with you. And instead of Jesus talking about his plan on earth, about how he's going to rule in his kingship, you know, in his kingdom, uh, rather he talks about dying. So you can imagine the disciples, this is making absolutely no sense to them because remember at this period of time, though they realized him to be the Messiah, the son of God, they didn't fully realize that Jesus was also the lamb. The one you remember in Isaiah 53 that would be slain for the sins of the world. But then, of course, as he mentions here prophetically, he'd rise again on the third day, as a prophet said of old. But not only that, but remember the disciples, they probably felt it pretty strange that Jesus was talking about some type of prediction at the hands of the religious leaders. Remember, the religious leaders were under the Sanhedrin. That was Israel's highest court. And so as they've been trying to attack Jesus, but they couldn't corner him, and for the most part, Jesus was always victorious, not just because of the rhetoric of the religious leaders, but they could never stump him. And every time they tried to counter him or give a certain objection or pose a certain aspect of the law, Jesus always responded correctly. And so at this point, the disciples probably thought, man, Jesus has the upper hand, but now all of a sudden he's predicting that later on, he's gonna die at the hands of these religious leaders, that he's gonna be executed. So for the disciples to hear this, basically what they're hearing was the religious leaders are going to get the Romans to approve uh, his crucifixion in a public way that's going to be very humiliating, which means that justice will be served by the Romans, that Jesus is not just a crook, but he's a felon, if you will. And so that's something to put ourselves into their mindset was hard for them to grasp and for them to understand. Now, later, the angel at the tomb, remember, he would remind the disciples of these very words in Luke chapter 24, 6 through 8. Now, here in Mark 8, 32, it says that Jesus said this plainly to them. Now, in the Greek, this literally means Jesus explicitly told them with boldness about his death and his resurrection. And we're told here in Matthew 16, 22, that Peter takes Jesus aside privately and he rebukes him saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. So after Jesus boldly proclaims his death and his resurrection, Peter gets enough courage to boldly rebuke Jesus about this nonsense about his death. So the way that Matthew puts it when he says that Peter took him aside, it literally just means that Peter privately takes Jesus aside because in that time, that custom, it was not right for a student to openly rebuke or to even question, right? Um, his teacher, his rabbi. So Peter, again, in respect, does that. But at the same time here in the Greek, it carries the idea that Peter's almost like bringing Jesus down to his level. Just because he proclaimed Jesus as the son of God doesn't give him the right to openly rebuke him. And, and so this situation 
is is an awkward one at best because the disciples are around. They're trying to figure out what Jesus is saying. And then Peter takes it upon himself to pull Jesus aside and say, far be it from you, Lord. This literally means, this is what Peter's saying to Jesus. He pulls him aside. Disciples are like, what's going on here? And Peter literally saying to Jesus, God have mercy on you. And then this other phrase, this shall never happen to you. This is in the double negative. It's, it's, like, a, it's like a reinforcement. Literally, you could put it like this. Peter's looking at Jesus and say, God have mercy on you for what you just said. That is so not true. And it shall never in no case ever take place that this shall happen. That's in essence what Peter is saying to Jesus. And then we're told in Matthew 16, verse 23, but Jesus turns and he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now in the Greek, Jesus actually turns from Peter in revulsion. So literally here's what's going on. Peter takes Jesus aside he starts rebuking him using these double negatives and saying, God have mercy on what you just said because it's so wrong. He's not just questioning him, but he's correcting Jesus. And of course, Peter in his mind, he's thinking he's doing the right thing. But now what happens is, is as Peter still is rebuking Jesus, he turns his back from Peter. In Mark 8, 33, it states, but turning and seeing his disciples... So he's interrupting Peter's rebuke and he turns his attention to all the disciples to openly admonish Peter's words. So this confession that Peter makes, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, it lined up with scripture. And that's the kind of faith that Jesus was going to build his church. But then we see, my friends, that Peter's confession turns to one of denial of Jesus' death and resurrection, of course, that did not line up with scripture and opposed what needed to be done in order to build the church. This phrase, get behind me, Satan, is an even stronger rebuke that identified Satan's tactics. And also in those days, it was a sign of respect or submission for students to walk behind their teacher. So when Jesus was saying, as he turned his back from Peter, get behind me, he's saying, look, I am the teacher. I am the son of God. Show a sign of respect that you need to walk behind me. And notice he doesn't just say get behind me, but he says you are a hindrance to me. This word hindrance can mean stumbling block, a trap. He did not want, Jesus did not want, especially in the confusion of the disciples as again, as they were maturing in their understanding of the death to come and what would result ultimately in three days, a resurrection and the fulfillment of prophecy. But Jesus did not want at that time, they got him, they got him right. They knew his identity but they needed to understand the future of the Messiah, of why he was ultimately there to be the substitutionary atonement of us, for us. And so this was a hindrance at the moment. And so Jesus directly addresses Satan. He calls out Peter's denial and he corrects them. And he talks about the coming crucifixion that would lead ultimately to the resurrection. See, Satan from the very beginning has tried to thwart whatever purpose Jesus came on earth to do. And now in this case, as we know, it was a crucifixion. And so back in Matthew chapter four, remember in verse eight, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And that's what Peter is saying in essence was like, Jesus, you don't have to do these things. It's not necessary. Well, how are they gonna know that? 
How do they know that? We don't. They clearly didn't know that then. And just like today, my friends, we can't save ourselves today. Now, this was a premature and a very foolish rebuking, obviously, by Peter. But we can understand to some degree that he didn't want to see the man that he loved, the Savior that he loved, to, to come and to suffer. But what Peter didn't understand was that the suffering, with suffering will come glory. Now, this is something he would later describe in great detail in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Notice what Peter writes. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In the final rebuke, Jesus says, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. The disciples, my friends, they wanted Jesus to establish his throne right away with no suffering or death. They were looking for glory in the new kingdom, not suffering in anticipation of it. So what a very valuable lesson that the disciples learned that day after their confession, but also in the midst of the open rebuke that Peter gave, Jesus responds and rebukes him back, but it was also a rebuke to Satan himself. I believe this was another opportune time that Satan was trying to use to cause disruption, confusion, and rebellion. So now we go to the second event that Jesus now is gonna teach his disciples the cost of discipleship. So let me read Mark chapter eight, beginning in verse 34. In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him will the Son of God also be ashamed when he comes to the glory of his Father and the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So what was the very first thing that Jesus teaches his disciples after Peter rebuking him and him turning and having to rebuke Peter and using this as an opportunity to make sure that Satan doesn't take advantage of the situation? The first thing he teaches them is that they need to deny themselves. And remember, they were so upset that Jesus was talking about death, but now he's telling his disciples, if you want to follow me, you need to be a part of the cross as well. You need to take up your cross and you need to be willing to follow me to death. And remember, the cross was a painful, shameful public death. So the disciples knew what Jesus was saying to them. Now they believed him to be the son of God, but now it was time for them to live it out by being willing to die for that belief. Now, of course, ironically, when Jesus does go to Golgotha, no disciples there to carry his cross. Matter of fact, the executioners had to find a bystander to take up his cross in Matthew 27, 32. And the point that we learn here, there's many things here, my friends, but first and foremost is to not be ashamed of Jesus. We cannot be ashamed to carry a cross and to receive Jesus we must be willing to receive the burdens of the cross. David Guzik writes, the cross wasn't about self-promotion or self-affirmation. The person carrying a cross knew they couldn't save themselves. And that's the lesson 
that Jesus wanted the disciples to know. Now, before he says, follow me, now remember he said that early on as as the early disciples, follow me, become fishers of men. But now he's telling them halfway into the ministry, you need to take up your cross. You need to follow me to death. And then when he says, follow me, this means that you are to take the same road as I'm going to take. So this idea is to stand behind the other person. Remember, get behind me. Stand behind the person. Follow me. Go where I'm going. Fellowship with me along the way. But my destiny is yours. And so when Jesus said in John 14, 19, because I live, you will live also. That was a promise given by Jesus. Before glory comes, there is suffering. Mark 8, 35, for whoever would save his life will lose, literally suffer damage or loss. But whoever loses his life for my sake in the gospels will save it. Those who pursue, my friends, their own will and neglect to serve the Lord will lose everything in the end. True discipleship, my friends, consists of both profit and loss. True discipleship has hardship as well as joy. But at the end of the day, when you and I choose not to live for the pleasures of this world, but we pursue the glory of God to surrender our lives to Him. We know it's not going to be easy, but we know it's going to be the most rewarding and the most fulfilling life to live here on this earth. So when Jesus poses this question, and my friends, as I looked at this question once again, I pray that it will penetrate your heart, your soul, as it has mine. He asked this question, I want you to think about this, my friends, right now. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What I wrote in response is saying, life without obedience will give you a life of misery and regret. Basically, what I'm saying back to the Lord, when I take this and personalize it in my own life, and I encourage you to do the same with great conviction, is this, Lord, without you, if I live a life of disobedience, if I don't obey you as my God, as my Savior, and I refuse to live according to your will, to your standards, then my life here on this, on this planet is going to be filled with nothing but misery and regret. So let me just put it like this, my friends. Life without obedience will give you a life of misery and regret. That's what disobedience gives you. But a life of obedience in the Lord gives us nothing but joy, forgiveness, mercy, grace and ultimately when this body leaves this world we will gain a resurrected body without sin without death read first corinthians 15 51 through 58 so when jesus poses this next question in verse 37 of mark for what can a man give in return for his soul there is nothing that can replace eternal life with god nothing think about that my friends what can be given in return for your soul. Jesus says in Luke chapter 12, 33 and 34, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. James 1, 12, blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. 2 Corinthians 5.10, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Here in verse 38, Jesus goes on to say, for whoever is ashamed 
ashamed of earthly conduct of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and the holy angels. So Jesus speaks to the present attitude his disciples had of him right at that moment. If they believed in Jesus and they were not ashamed to follow him, then they would be willing to surrender their lives even unto death. Here in Matthew 16, 27, uh, Mark doesn't mention these words, but Matthew does. It says, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. You see, when you and I live a life of obedience to the Lord, we will receive eternal life and we will also receive eternal rewards. And then we're told in Mark 9, 1, that he says that many people who are standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. I believe that this is speaking about the transfiguration account of Jesus that's going to occur in our next podcast. We're going to be talking in Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 14. So as we wrap up this podcast today, my friends, we saw two powerful uh, teachings that Jesus gave the disciples. The first is that before glory comes suffering, and as followers of Jesus Christ, if we're going to follow him, we must first deny ourselves and take up our cross in order to do that. Following Jesus doesn't mean that we just live in a bubble. Following Jesus doesn't mean that we just ask whatever we desire and we're going to get it because he's going to spoil us because that's what a good heavenly father does. No, quite the contrary. He loves us so much that he came into this world. God sent his only begotten son and he is our living example. He is our atonement. He is our sacrifice. And as we live according to the teachings of Jesus Christ, we understand that we're not of this world and it's not going to profit us one bit when we decide to disobey God and live a life of disobedience because that's only going to lead uh, us down a path uh, to live a life of misery, of suffering and regret and shame. But Christ forgives us of our sins, my friends. That's what's so amazing about this. And so today, as you conclude this podcast with me, as you've been listening to this teaching of Jesus here in Matthew 16 and Mark 8 and Luke 9, let us be reminded that to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, there is a cost involved. We are not to come with our agenda. We are not to come with sinful desires and to think that we can just bring him into this relationship with Jesus and it's going to be okay. And as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, then it's fine. No, we don't bring our sin into this relationship. We ask openly for Christ to forgive us of that sin. And now as we live in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are not to fulfill the lust of the flesh. So I pray, my friend, whatever struggles you're having in your life, whatever difficulty, whatever cost, if you will, that you are enduring right now for the sake of the gospel, continue, continue, my friends, to stand strong and know that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. I love you, my friends, and I'll see you on the next podcast. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening, and keep standing strong in the Word of God.